Hey, good morning, church. Uh, I'll take it. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Matthew. I serve as the uh, pastor here at Christ City Church. Really delighted that you're here this morning to worship with us. Hey, Kate. Good to see you. Um, we are in a series, this is the second week of, of a two-week series um, that we've done the entirety of our life as a church. It's called My Most Important Question. And this is a series that we do where members from the Christ City family, they stand in the midst of their community of faith and share what they, uh, what have been for some of them their most shaping and pressing questions of faith and life. Um, these things that uh, members of our community share, they are often raw, they're often tender, Uh, They're often courageous and challenging. Um, They're often frightening. uh, And sometimes they're inspiring. uh, But they're always faithful. And one of the reasons for this series is because we believe that our faith in Christ and our church is strong enough and resilient enough for our questions. And that actually wrestling with our questions, well, that's one of the things that God uses to bring growth and faith and maturity in him. And so this morning, you're going to hear uh, from three um, MMI cures. You'll hear from Nikki Wiggins, who serves as our Kid City director. You'll also hear from uh, Brian Lomax, and you'll hear from Nicole Hill. So join me as I pray for them, uh, and then we'll welcome them up. God, I pray for our friends as they come and um, share ways that you've been at work in their lives, share ways that the enemy's been at work, and share their own wrestling with it places where they were unsure or uncertain. Some of those places continue to linger, but Lord, what's been present through it all has been your your faithfulness. So God, I pray that we would hear uh, from our friends as we listen to their stories, that we would be able to identify the story of God in it, that we'd be able to even hear our own stories in it, and that we would be shaped by your faithfulness through it all. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you welcome uh, Nikki? Good morning. All right. So, my parents are here. Um, All the way from Alabama. Yeah. Um, I also have a a very, very old friend. Um, We were friends before we were born. Jonathan. (laughs) Um, He's too from Alabama, but lives close in the DMV area. All right. So, without that, can you pray with me? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for open hearts and open minds. I thank you for courage and bravery. I thank you for um, love. So um, thank you that I get through this. (laughs) Um, Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. So I was born into a, thank you, you know me too well. Keep the box here. (laughs) All right. I was born into a Christian family, and Jesus was always at the center. We are black. We went to black church, so that means we were at church seven days a week. (laughs) My parents have been in ministry for over 30 years, and I said I would never go into ministry. Well, here I am, going into my fourth year of ministry at this church. Mm Mm-hmm. I am like my parents in many ways. I am quick to tell it like it is. I get that from Lank. (laughs) 
And if you put on a full face of makeup without wearing blush, I will judge you. I get that from my mother. <laughs> my parents have been pretty good with grace and listening to understand and not shut people down. Also, when my parents knew we did something wrong, they would say, okay, today is a free day. You can tell us anything and you won't have any consequences. And we're like, oh, yes, okay. Um, they allowed us space to tell our story and they listened to understand. And then my dad would ask clarifying, clarifying questions like, what made you think that was smart? Like, <laughs> what made you do that? <laughs> they allowed us this space and uh, they sought to see things from our perspectives. Even better, so my mother has a, she has three siblings. It was seven grandchildren. And so when there was like a family issue, like somebody ran away or fell to class, we would have family court with her brothers and sisters and my grandparents, okay? So <laughs> we would have family court and my grandfather was the judge. My grandmother was a defense attorney. And whoever got in trouble, their parents would be the prosecuting attorneys. <laughs> Everyone else was a jury, and our job was to hear the arguments from both sides. We always got pardoned. However, <laughs> my grandfather, who, rest in peace, who just pa recently passed away, um, would make us sit through like a four-hour conversation about what we could have done differently to not have family court. <laughs> um, okay, so March 4th, 2011 is a day that I will never forget. It was the day my most important question emerged. The question of, does God embrace all of his daughters? Like I said, I can be a judgy person. I judge whether you have blush on, if you're wearing white shoes in the wrong season, if you cheer for Alabama, War Eagle, and if you have poor taste in music. <laughs> I was once the person that judged women the worst. And the thing that drew my harshest, harshest, most vile judgment was women who had abortions. I would say things like, how could you be so careless? How could you be so dumb? And I would say things like, stop using abortions as birth control. I talked behind the backs of my friends that had gone through the process process and judge them. March 4th, 2011. It was a beautiful sunny day. My godmother Melinda and I were driving across the bay. It's like from Mobile to, like going from here to Bowie, but on a beautiful bridge with blue water. She kept asking if I was okay. My response was yes. She said, I fully support you and know that I love you. I remained quiet. I then heard another voice very clearly say, I love you too. I looked at her and said, huh? She said, I didn't say anything. Then again, I heard in a very clear voice, I love you. God, I know this isn't you talking to me right now. I cried a little and I kept looking out at the clear blue water. We had almost made it to our destination. My godmother told me to close my eyes and she turned up the music. I then realized what I was doing was becoming very real. And I could have chosen to walk away, but I couldn't. I thought about my parents, myself, and many other things. We got out of the car, 
We hugged, and then we went inside. Melinda did all the talking for me. In that moment, she was my rock. We went back to watch a video of what would happen, and then the nurse had me lay down on my back to do an ultrasound. She needed to see how far along I was in my pregnancy. Yes, me, pregnant, not married, not even in a relationship, 12 and a half weeks. What would my family say? What would happen between the dad and I? I didn't want to become another, baby, another black baby mama. There are stereotypes about single women, single black women, well, women of color in general, about being single parents, that we're hood, we're ghetto, we come from uh, broken families, and that was not the case. What would our church say about my parents? They kind of knew me as the road Christian already. When the doctor arrived in the room, it was small and cold. They had me sit down and lay on my back. My entire body tensed up. The doctor told me to breathe and relax. He said, I can tell this is hard for you. I do not want to see you here again. I told him, yes, sir. Once the procedure started, one of the nurses grabbed my hand. In that moment, I felt seen and heard. A few moments felt like a lifetime, and then it was over. I was no longer pregnant, and I was totally fine. At least that's what I told myself. After the procedure, I had to go into another room to recline and eat some snacks. After the nurses came around to check me to make sure I was okay, they released me to go home. My body hurt, and I was miserable. My body was all confused. My body thought I was in labor. I felt labor pains. It was trying to produce something that was no longer there. Not only was my body hurt and confused, my soul was hurting too. It was miserable and confusing and I was so angry. I was so angry with myself that I had gotten pregnant. The things I called her the women who had abortions was now what I called myself. I saw myself and was disgusted. I told myself I was dumb, dumb dirty, and unworthy. I felt shame and very inadequate. I believed the things I said about myself for years. I allowed my abortion to dictate every area of my life. That one word described me and held me back for years. The feeling of being inadequate was very real. It showed up in my job, my relationships, and school, which I'm back in school now. In the midst of my physical, spiritual, and emotional pain, God placed someone in my life to remind me of God's embrace. <laughs> Felicia was that someone. God places people in your life and you have no idea why. A woman named Felicia Woods, I went to church with saw me the Sunday after my abortion and she asked me, are you okay? I said, no. And I proceeded to tell her what happened. She gave me a big hug and told me, this does not define you. You are still God's beloved she took, it took me years to believe this, and sometimes I still question that. One of the passages that has come to be a source of healing for me is simultaneously one of the passages that can often be a source of pain for women who have been what I've been through. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18, for you created me, you, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you 
when I was made in that secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand when I awake. I am still with you. <laughs> A passage that is so often directed towards life in the womb, and that's true, is also true of me. Despite brokenness and because of God's grace, I still am fearfully and wonderfully made. And God is still with me. When I was praying through and thinking through my most important question, <laughs> I sense God wanted me to share the story. And I know it's probably been hard for you to hear and maybe even disappointing, but I also knew that there were people that I needed to tell, needed to tell ahead of time. I told my parents, the ones who have always reminded me of God's embrace. And when I told them, they said, okay, we'll be there. And they drove 1,011 miles to be here this morning and got stuck in that horrible DC traffic on the way in. <laughs> but I also had to share with a teenager that I'm discipling and investing in. When I told her, she looked at me and said, when I look at you, that's not something I thought you would do, but I love you. And then she gave me a hug, and I was even more messed up then than I am now. Um, and in that moment, Emma reminded me of God's embrace and that he is always with me. Aren't you glad you don't look like what you've been through? <laughs> the last conversation was with someone I knew um, that cares deeply about the issue of abortion and the lives of the unborn. I love him like a brother. He loves me. It was a hard conversation, for sure. <laughs> but the compassion and embrace and community were what I experienced from him. And another reminder of God's embrace. One of the things that God has shown me, and there are so many things, is one that whoever it is we believe we can't embrace, either because of what they've done or their past, know that God embraces them. That truth might temper our anger and sober our passion, but he still embraces us. I became a person that believed I was outside of God's embrace because they were outside of mine. And though I wouldn't want anyone to walk through what I went through, I'm grateful God didn't leave me. He remained, he reminded me that grace is still there for me. He reminded me through Felicia, through my parents, through a teenager, through a brother. God reminds me that his love is greater than anything I can do. So I know y'all are wondering how my parents probably took the news. Um, about five years ago, four or five years ago, my mother and I were having a very heated discussion about abortion. I then told her about mine. I remember the disappointment in her eyes. She asked, why? And I can't remember what I told her at that moment, 
but her perspective changed. Now it affected her child. She didn't like what I had done, but she loved me. She told my dad, and he was very compassionate. My father didn't like what I had done, but he loved me. Just like our Heavenly Father loves us, he may not like our sin, but he will always love us. God is overwhelming and reckless and covers every wrong. And he died on the cross because he knew we would mess up, right? That's the beauty of our God. He wants us to need him and come to him with all of our mess. He loves you despite what you have done. God is good all the time. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Give it up for Nikki. That was, wow. When Matthew Watson asked me to do my most important question, what immediately sprung to mind was the second most important question in my mind at the moment, but one that terrified me. As I closed the email and looked away from my phone, I asked myself, how was I going to admit to a room full of people that my faith which should be the most important thing in my life, wasn't what I wanted it to be. And most importantly, and this is my most important question, was I secretly okay with the fact that it wasn't? Was Jesus actually for me, or was I okay with him being a peripheral belief that would eventually go away with time? What brought me to that moment in my cubicle at work was years in the making, beginning as a kid who found a level of comfort in his Catholic upbringing only to have it upended, culminating with a call from a university professor in London that wrecked all the plans I'd been working towards. My faith journey has been a series of ups and downs, much like everyone in this room. As a kid, I enjoyed church in unexpected ways. Even if I wasn't particularly interested in the Bible passages or the messages of that Sunday, I liked the history of the church, and I liked the feeling as though I was a part of something even if I wasn't quite sure what that something was. You recognize that you're a part of a large group of people around the world who are saying, saying the same prayers that you are, hearing similar messages, and ultimately seeking some level of truth in the same way, never knowing if you'd ever find it, but seeking it all the same. And for a while, that was okay with me. I was happy to be involved, and since my parents were making me go to church anyway, I just rolled with it. <laughs> The passage of time as we grow older pokes holes in the innocence of childhood in both expected and unexpected ways. At this point, I was a teenager who had grown to understand that faith as a vessel, understand faith as a vessel for how life could be and not just something you did on Sunday. A big reason for that was a youth group I joined. A handful of teenagers with the help of two vibrant leaders named Royce and Norma were cultivating faith that was vibrant and real. It's with that in mind that I still look back in disappointment on the Friday night in 2003 when we were told that due to an extramarital affair, our youth group was ending with no answer as to if or when we would be able to restart it. It was at that point, along with the global issues facing the church, that I began to take a step back and I started focusing on other things. Church, and in turn faith, became less of a priority in my life and other interests took its place. And after a while, 
I stopped going altogether. I didn't miss it, and life went on without skipping a beat. But then, there were those ups and downs again. While well, I planned to have the typical college experience, God and a good friend named James Moss had other ideas. Through a carefully crafted lie about a college party that wasn't actually happening, <laughs> I ended up in a meeting of my college ministry where for the first time, I heard the gospel presented in a way that I could apply to my life that made sense to the adult I was becoming. Despite my initial misgivings, I became heavily involved in the ministry, growing in faith in a number of ways, with the highs of knowing Jesus outweighing the lows that came with the everyday rigors of life. Much to the chagrin of my grandmother, <laughs> who to this day still hasn't accepted it, I decided that I didn't want to be Catholic anymore and started att attending a non-denominational church that I felt better suited my beliefs and needs as a new believer. And I should just stop and say this now. I've told this to my small group, but my grandmother calls me every Saturday afternoon and asks if I want to go to Mass with her at 5 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> The answer is always no, but she's persistent. <laughs> as, time does, as time does when you're having fun, college came and went in the blink of an eye, and I was thrust into the real world. After much thought and prayer, I decided to pursue graduate school with the ultimate goal of doing my PhD in London. And after three years, everything was going perfectly to plan. I got accepted at my school of choice in London, and I was fully prepared to pack up my entire life and begin an incredible journey. I knew something was wrong as soon as I realized that the number of the phone call that had pierced the darkness of my room at 4.17 in the morning was from the UK. On the other end was my supervising professor dropping the bombshell on me. He had accepted a position at a university in Germany, and unless I could learn to speak German in nine months, the university would have to rescind my acceptance and I would have to seek other educational opportunities elsewhere. I hung up, dumbfounded, quickly processing that this wasn't a dream and in fact, I'd just seen my entire plan go up in flames, and there wasn't a single thing I could do about it. As the days and weeks passed, I accepted the fact that I wasn't going to London. What I didn't accept was my feeling that God had let me down. I was absolutely furious. I had done everything I was supposed to do. While my friends were finding success and gaining everything they'd wanted in life, I found myself on the outside looking in. I became bitter towards my closest friends, and especially bitter with God. I hid it well. I pretended to be happy when my friends got promotions or got married, but the bitterness, bitterness overwhelmed me, and I began to dislike who I had become. The reality was I felt ignored by God. The God who had been so very real in college was now nowhere to be found. And despite my attendance at church and staying true to my beliefs, God remained quiet. Fast forward a year, and I still felt that way. Bitterness gave way to indifference. If God didn't care about me, there was really no reason to care about God. Jesus had nothing for me, so I had nothing in return. I kept up appearances, but I'd made my decision. I was ready to move on from Jesus. But the Ackermans, unbeknownst to them, were being used by God. Drew Andrea's constant request that I could just come check out their church <laughs> eventually got me to at least see what was going on. I didn't expect anything from the visit. I don't remember anything from the sermon that day. Sorry, Watson. <laughs> uh, except for how passionately Matthew spoke and how emotionally moved he was by what he shared with us that day. 
despite everything in me saying that I could walk away right now with no issues because I had come to check out their church like they asked, I decided that I would come check out the newcomer's dinner. And despite everything in me saying, just walk away now, I joined the Watson small group. <laughs> Even though I wasn't anywhere near being on the same page as God, I could recognize people that were. Slowly, the bitterness began to fade. I was truly happy for the people who were seeing growth in their own lives, but I still wondered when God would show up in my own. But that was the thing. God was showing up. I just didn't realize it. Just as I'd done in college, I showed up to a home with open doors despite my misgivings, a place where I grew to know in the deepest region of my heart and soul that I was going to continue this walk because I realized I'd been asking the wrong question for quite some time. My most important question isn't whether Jesus is for me. Jesus has always been for me. From the pages of Genesis where he answered in the days of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone, the promises of Jesus have never been in doubt. My most important question is whether I truly wanted to follow Jesus. And I stand before my church family today resoundingly and proudly saying yes. In the moments where the nights have seen the darkest and I've been most unsure of what I needed, Jesus has been there for me, and I'm forever grateful for that. I won't pretend that everything is solved or that there won't be any issues down the road, but I will go forth knowing that I have a redeemer who is ready to fight for me. And in this moment, in the moments going forward, my heart is full knowing that truth. It's happening. I'm here. Okay. Good morning. Um, so important context for what I'm going to share is that I'm the oldest, uh, and I've always taken that role very seriously. So <clears throat> anybody who's younger than me, I pick on them. Uh, I always demand the front seat, uh, and it's really important to me that I be strong. So uh, my most important today, my most important question today is uh, how can I be strong and still rely on God? Uh, so, um, when I look back on my kind of teen years, I realized that my family and friends and I went through a lot of trauma, and my role in all of that was to be strong, to be consistent and steady and, ste and, 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 uh, and decisive, and I always was able to be that, and I was so, so, so proud of it. Uh, and then, and then in, in, in my late teens, I guess I was 19, I just hit this wall. I, Came home from college one day, it was like this weirdly warm January day, and I went upstairs to my bedroom, and I was looking out of the window, and it was so, so sunny, it was like blinding. And I just had this idea, like, what if I just take a little break? I'm exhausted, I think I want a break. So I closed the blinds, and I got back in bed, and I just stayed there for, for months. Um, at first, it felt like a choice, it felt like, I'm super strong, and this is probably a test. So, uh, like, a wise old man will appear, and he'll show me how to harness my super strength, and I'll emerge better than I was before to protect the innocent. Um, like your classic origin story. Uh, I've got delusions of grandeur, so that's what I was thinking was going to happen. <laughs> and uh, but but that didn't happen. No no one came to help me. I didn't ask for help, and I didn't know how to help myself. So I just kind of like sank. And I kept thinking about 
all the ways that people needed me and how the decisions I'd made in the past for other people had resulted in their present pain and I blame myself for everything. Um, and I kept saying like, snap out of it, get out of this room, snap out of it, get out of this room, and I couldn't do it. Uh, and so I had this like really clear image of God at that time, like turning around and walking out of the door. And I thought if this was a test, then I have clearly failed. So there were two things that gave me comfort, only two things uh, in the whole world, and I just built my whole life around them. The first was Hamlet, because I'm a nerd. So both the things are nerd things, because I'm a nerd. Um, and so the first was Hamlet. I identified a lot with him. Again, the delusions of grandeur. So minus the like, <laughs> minus the murder and stuff, I felt like I had a kingdom that I was like, needed to inherit um, and I was kind of like letting my kingdom down so I needed to make a decision like what am I going to do and uh, so every single morning I would wake up and I would decide I'd go in front of the mirror this little oval mirror in the uh, in the hallway and I would yeah I would make my decision so I would say to be or not to be that is the question whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more. And I would think about everybody I had failed, and how I couldn't get up again, no matter everything I tried, I still couldn't get up, and God was gone, and I was alone, and I was so tired. I would just mainly, I would just think how tired I was. Uh, but the soliloquy keeps going. Uh, and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks the flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. There's the rub. And I would get stuck exactly where Hamlet did because what if what I was thinking about made everything worse? Everything I had done up to that point had made everything worse. And what if I was even more weak for running away from failure than like letting myself just sit in it and be punished. So, um, so after that, I would get in bed and I would turn to my second comfort in the world, uh, the Golden Girls. <laughs> so um, for those of you who may not know, the Golden Girls are these like four sassy women and they live in uh, Miami and they go on these very progressive hijinks. They're all senior citizens and they go on these really, really progressive hijinks for like the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, oh, I loved them so much. I was obsessed, like not in the millennial way. They, so they used to come on, <laughs> like legit. Uh, they used to come on four times a day on the weekdays, three times a day on the weekends. Each one hour showing had two episodes. Even SNL did a sketch about how they were coming on too much and they were like making young people act old. And I just, every time something went right, I would laugh hysterically every time that something went wrong, I would cry hysterically. The like, oh, the cliffhanger season finales would kill me. I would be so stressed out. Um, they were, they were my pals and my confidants. Um, and uh, and then like inexplicably, Lifetime went from four airings a day to three, which felt like an earthquake. And and then they announced that they were going to move the show from Lifetime to the Hallmark Channel. And like the routine was that I say, I do my super chill Shakespeare thing, and then I watch the Golden Girls. I turn to Channel 9 and I watch the Golden Girls. And I couldn't just be like turning to other channels. It's chaos. And so I was, 
I was just so stressed out. And then at the same time, during my, like, again, my Shakespeare time, uh, this, this verse kept popping into my head. And at that time, I was not praying. I, I mean, I watched God walk away. So I wasn't praying. I wasn't talking to him. I wasn't thinking about him. Um, but even still, this verse, I came across it somehow, Philippians 4 and 10. Uh, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were always concerned but lacked opportunity to show it. And, um, and I thought, okay, okay, cool. I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't reading the Bible. So I didn't know that Paul was talking to the church. And I wasn't going to, like, read around for context. So I just interpreted it on my own because uh, I'm good like that. And so I thought, okay, it's cool. So this is somebody saying to God, like, welcome back. You always wanted to, like, be there for me, but I wasn't giving you any opportunities to do it. And so I thought, all right, okay. So God left, but God, I guess he comes back for people. Um, and then people need to give him opportunities to, like, do his thing. And then he can come back and erase all of your pain and have this like sunrise of renewed concern. So I was like, all right, I think that I can give you a stage to work your magic, God. I think that I can like get myself together enough that you can come in and you can erase this time and the pain and the failure. Um, I can do that. So I, I started like slowly, that's a whole other story, but I started slowly working my way out of my room and trying really hard to impress him with feats of like super strength. So I was there for my family again, I was there for my friends, I was steady and consistent. Um, but even still, I still had these feelings of like doubt and failure. Um, there would still be these days where I would like lose my balance and I couldn't get out of bed again, and I'd be terrified. Because I kept thinking, like, there's something wrong with me. Not everybody walks away from their life and college and everything they have going on to sit in their room all day. Um, so if I don't do this exactly right, I'm going to trip some wire and be back there. Um, and, and then he won't have his, and how is he supposed to do a sunrise of concern if I'm, like, back in my room? Uh, and so at the moments, in those moments, like Philippians 4 and 10 would come back and I would, it would repeat itself, but it would drive me crazy because I was like, right, exactly, I get it, I understand what the verse says, I am giving you this opportunity to show your concern, you're not showing your concern, I'm still in pain, like life is changing, but the feelings aren't. Um, so I was very, very frustrated with him. And uh, so then a few years after I graduated college, I was in New Orleans displaying my super strength. And um, I was with AmeriCorps. So I was rebuilding homes in New Orleans. And uh, that is where I met Jim Morrison, not the singer. And <laughs> I just realized, I was like, oh, you guys probably think it wasn't him. Uh, so, so I was in City Park, which is this gorgeous park in New Orleans. It's like they have all these pastures and horses and ponds and weeping willows. It's very Avatar-esque. Um, and I was under this one of this, I was like really truly, I was under a weeping willow tree and then Jim Morrison arrives and he says, you know, we're, my team and I are there to volunteer in the park for the day and he is our volunteer coordinator. And so he uh, hands us all assignments and the thing that I remember the most about him, he was like a short, older white man, he had on this like maroon hat, uh, he looked like a little league dad and the thing, it was, he was, he, I've never met anybody with more peace like emanating off of him. I felt like I could have touched it. And, uh, and he gave us all of our assignments, and my assignment for the day was to be a runner with him and uh, drop off supplies to volunteers all over the park. 
So we get in the car and we start driving around. And, um, and I was having a hard time because it was two years after Katrina and the city was experiencing these, like, this crazy spike in violence. And my AmeriCorps, my program, they'd actually decided to move us out of New Orleans because it was too dangerous to stay there. And uh, they decided that we couldn't work in New Orleans anymore because it was too dangerous. And the only reason we were in City Park because it was barely in New Orleans. And, and my team and I felt really guilty, but also grateful to be safe, but then guilty for feeling grateful. And, um, and, and I was trying to be very strong for them. But I don't want to talk about any of that. So, uh, so I just asked him, I like, turned to him and say, okay, Jim Morrison, what's your deal? Like, why are you here in the park today? And he says, um, well, I'm a priest. Uh, it, it, okay, so I don't know anything about Catholicism. I am Pentecostal. My, I was raised Pentecostal, and we were actually raised to believe Catholics were doing it wrong. So uh, I'm going to do my best to share with you what he shared with me, but I don't know any Catholic terms, and I could have Googled it or asked somebody, but I didn't do that. So uh, he, he starts talking about how he fell in love with Catholicism, and he uh, is describing the... Uh, well, it's, it's surprising because he's also, like I said, he was a Little League dad, and I had never seen a priest, like, in the wild. I didn't know they could, like, <laughs> leave their house. So I was like, okay, I guess, all right, Catholics, okay. And so, uh, but he starts describing, he's like, it's the way someone would describe falling in love with a person is how he described falling in love with Catholicism. And he talks about like the songs that you guys say, the Catholic thing. Uh, and I was picturing like, and I was like, oh, you should come to a Pentecostal church because we got drum solos in our church. <laughs> oh, I don't really know. Uh, and then he talked, about, he talked about loving the traditions, like the rituals. And I pictured like the beads and the like cross thing and the like stand up, sit down. And I was, I was like, dude, we, all you have to do to be Pentecostal is be down to go to church for like 15 hours on Sunday. You don't have to do anything else. Um, so I didn't really have like a guy didn't understand that and then he he talked about but he he talked about loving how he was able to give all this love and comfort to his parish he uh, was the priest over a Catholic parish and so I'm sorry over a college parish and so he was able to work with young people at this really pivotal moment in their life and help them uh, explore all these questions that they had and show them love and God's mercy in those questions and, um, and he was so proud of that. And I just pictured him like being like little league dad, just showing all of these young people so much love. And I thought that must be so nice. They must have loved that. Uh, and he says, but I known I was gay my whole life. And, um, and what he decided is that he'd wanted to be a, a priest much, much more than he wanted anything else. And so he tucked that away. And even though he had people uh, in his life, he, he was, you know, residing over a congregation of people who some of them were questioning their sexuality and on that journey he just said he he separated himself from what he was going through and tried to be the person that they needed him to be uh, and then and then there was the um, the scandal of abuse in the Catholic Church kind of hit and the Vatican said that the priest who done what they did did it because they were gay and then he saw in his family, in his parish, some people go towards hate and intolerance, and other people turn that hate and intolerance in on themselves and question who they were. And it broke his heart. And, um, and so in an effort to bridge that growing divide, he decided to stand up one Sunday and say, 
I love you, I'm gay, and what the Vatican said isn't true. And, um, and then a lot of his congregation turned on him and he was excommunicated. Uh, so after that, he went to work in a uh, halfway house, but because he had been a priest, everyone was really, he said it made everyone uncomfortable and they asked him to leave. And then one day he was driving through, he was driving and he saw a billboard advertising positions at City Park and he took one and that is why he was in City Park today. And I was like, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> that is not the answer that people are looking for when they ask you. <laughs> um, but the, the question that came to mind, the, the only thing I could say was, so are you mad at God? And he's like looking forward. I remember, this is like, you know, one of those memories that stays with you forever. He's like looking forward and he's, he's been eating cranberries the whole time. So he's like eating this cranberry. And he kind of says to me, but kind of to himself, like it, when I asked, did it make any sense? He was like, no, why would I be? These are my 40 days in, in the desert. And I never heard anybody talk about their pain and the worst experiences of their life with no shame, no hesitation, no resolution even. I didn't even know that was an option. Um, and, and when he shared that, he didn't look like a failure to me. He didn't look, he looked like the same exact Little League dad, um, but maybe like with a, like a cape behind his back now. Um, he looked like a boss, actually. Um, and, and he wasn't lost, and he wasn't confused. He understood that he was on a journey, that he was taking intentional steps out of the desert. And, uh, and over the years, I would keep coming back to his story, and it would help me to see elements of my own that I'd missed. Um, and I realized I'd just been waiting for God to come back in this like sunrise of renewed concern and to erase all of these feelings. Of, of depression and anxiety and uh, self-doubt. And when he didn't do it all at once, I thought he wasn't doing it at all. Um, but what I realized is that he kept showing up over and over again and showing me how, he's showing me the path out of that desert, you know? Um, so that when those feelings hit, and they still hit, I would know how to get out of them. And uh, <laughs> he'd actually show me the way a long time ago, but, uh, but I hadn't bothered to finish Philippians 4. And if I had, then um, I would have known then what I know uh, for sure now. Um, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is an act of tremendous courage to stand in front of people, even those that you know that love you. 
to tell the harder parts of your story and your journey with the Lord. And with all of the stories, there, there, is, there is a consistent um, hero, and, and it is God's ongoing and continued faithfulness, even in the desert places, and even in the places that feel um, like um, when you feel lost. And there's um, a passage that I just want to offer up that's also from the Psalms. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. That's the testimony that we've heard this morning from different voices but in harmony. That would say, extol the Lord with me. I sought him. And he answered. He answered in cold rooms. He answered in middle of the night phone calls. He answered in bedrooms through sitcoms. And he answered with his presence each and every place. Thank you, friends. Thank you, heroes, for pointing us to the true hero. I'm grateful for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, those are, those are, you have spoken to us this morning. You have spoken to us through those that, uh, you, um, that you have saved and redeemed and restored and renewed, and even those whose healing has happened but is still on the horizon. You've reminded us. You've reminded us of your embrace. You've reminded us of your faithfulness to us. You have reminded us that the work that you have begun, that you will see it to completion in us, and that it's never our strength. That it's never our hard work, but it is yours, yours always. Each of the the hard spaces and places that we've been in and the ways that we have let ourselves and let you and let others down, the ways that we have been frustrated by turns that we did not expect when plans don't go the way that we wanted. God, you have been there. And you are always there. Even when it seems like you're silent, you're there. Even when it seems like you've been the one to abandon us, you are there. And we have needed reminding that your embrace is for all of us. And that's the reason why Christ went to the cross, to remind us of the links to which he would go to secure our healing and redemption, our restoration and salvation, and that is what you extend to us. So, Lord, we say thank you. We say we believe, help our unbelief. And let us experience your presence with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.